please turn to James chapter 4. Again, James 4. Today we're going to meditate on the joy of, of relationships and how sometimes it's not joy, but there's actually sorrow in our relationships. And then all that it is to have other relationships, even when they're hard, our God uses them to change us. So God is at work in our relationships, accomplishing his redemptive purposes in our lives. And we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is for no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is an amazing portion of the scripture. This paragraph begins by asking the question. So he asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So he asks the question, what causes conflict in your relationships? And then he ends this paragraph by saying, draw near to God. And God will then draw near to you. He says, humble yourself and then you will be exalted by God. That is a picture of transformation. He begins talking about conflict, and it ends with being exalted, lifted up by God. So this is a tremendous picture that I would imagine all of us want to be a part of. We all can experience conflict, and yet every one of us wants to be exalted and lifted up by God. Let me give you the main idea, so the primary truth from this paragraph is that God reveals his glory by changing us through our relationships. So God is displaying all that he is, a God who is mighty to save, a God who resurrects the dead, a God who is at work, a God who is a redeemer. So God is displaying all that he is. Part of one way that he's displaying his glory is by changing us by using our relationships. If we're open to it, if we don't push people away or shut them out or ignore people or live isolated, which is why as a church we constantly call to join a home group, join a discipleship group. You cannot do this alone. This is God's design. He changes us through our relationships. 
So this text here is, is showing us how that happens or how God's changing us to reflect his character. So God made us for relationships. He designed us to need them, to want them. And then he gave us relationships. Of course, you have your most intimate life with your husband, your wife, your children. But more than that, friends, extended family, church members, he's given us relationships so we can experience joy because God is good. Friendships are a gift from above. And yet, if we're honest, relationships can be hard. It can be quite difficult with our relationships. And so I doubt it's just me, but I would imagine that most, if not all, of our relationships are marked with great joy, but also with great sorrow, disappointment, and challenge. And yet, in God's infinite wisdom, he uses our relationships to expose us. He reveals areas that need to change, so he is actively exposing us, but then he's also transforming us through his spirit by the means of relationships. And so relationships are powerful. They are life-changing. So we're going to consider from James 4 the life-changing power of relationships. And so number one, through our relationships, God leads you to, number one, recognize your sinful desires. So through your relationships, God is leading you, number one, to recognize your sinful desires. So he uses your friendships to open your eyes so that you can see what's going on inside of you. Verse 1 begins with a question. So what causes quarrels and fights among you? What's causing this conflict, this brokenness, your problems with your relationships? But then he answers the question. He says, is it not this? Well, it is. He's answering it. That your passions are at war within you. So there's this conflict that's going on inside of you as a believer where you have the Holy Spirit, you're made new, and yet you're not in heaven yet, so we live in the now but not yet. We now are redeemed, and we now are being sanctified, but we have not yet been resurrected and glorified. So there's this, this conflict within us, and he says, what is this? It's your passions. Now, the word passions here is describing specifically a selfish or an indulgent passion, so self-centered desires. And then in verse 2, elaborates on. He says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So he's saying at the root of all of our relationship problems, at the root of our conflict, is our self-centered, our self absorbed, sinful desires. And we can try to get our own way in our relationships and control, manipulate people. It leads to, it says here, like this murderous thoughts. I mean, murder, it could lead to actual literal murder, but even long before you actually commit murder, you can already have thoughts that are pretty dark and murderous that are just evil thoughts. 
So he's saying that we have these, these passions, and then verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. And so he's describing how now even your prayer life is suffering. And so your soul is affected when your relationships are not healthy. It says, you've even stopped praying. You don't have because you don't ask. And so your soul is beginning to slowly drift away from the God that you love. But then verse 3 says, you ask. And so even when you do pray, he says, you ask and you do not receive. So God's not answering your prayers. He's not listening to you. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so this is someone that is self-centered. And when they're praying and they're asking God, they're asking for selfish things. And so they're not asking God, change me. They're not, they're not asking God, may your will be done. They're not asking for wisdom from above. They're not asking for God to reveal his glory. They're not, they're not asking for anything that is aligned with God's will because God always answers yes to a prayer that is aligned with his will. See, God loves you too much. Hear me. God loves you too much to give you what you ask for if what you're asking for is selfish. He loves you too much. He won't give it to you. Because it'll destroy you. It'll consume you. It'll take you further away from him. It'll take you further away from other people. And you think you want it and you're asking for it, whatever it is, and, and it is selfish and self-indulgent. And God is saying, my son, daughter, no, no, I can't, I can't give that to you. He loves you too much. So he says, you don't get what you ask for because you're asking selfishly. Because God wants more for us, for you, than usually we even want for ourselves. And what is it that God wants for you? According to these verses, he wants you to have your eyes open so that you can see your sinful desires. He wants you to see. Why? Because those sinful desires are taking you far from him and are destroying your other human relationships. And so ultimately what God wants is for you to have real, genuine joy and peace. There's only one source of real joy and peace, God himself. And so he wants to give you the best, which is more of himself. And so when we pray for that, he will always hear our prayers and answer yes. You see, when we have relational problems and broken relationships, it allows us to see our sinful desires. And when our eyes are opened, this is an act of mercy where God allows us to see so that we can then change. So are you blind? to your sinful desires. Maybe you say, well, I don't know. I'm blind, so I don't know if I am or not. Can you help me? How do I know if I'm blind? Well, if you already know what's going on inside of you, then you're not blind. But a lot of people don't take the time to sit quietly and think and pray 
and meditate and beg God to speak to them. And so because we live in a very fast-paced culture, it's just go, 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 go. We don't ever have time for solitude, and we don't do it. We don't like it. And so a lot of times we're not self-aware. Let me give you some examples of some sinful desires here on the screen. This is, this is not exhaustive, but these are some, some big ones, some common ones. One is comfort. And, and we see this in our relationships. Again, comfort's not evil or bad, but we can corrupt it. And then we can make it the ultimate and what we want most in life. And so then we corrupt what is good, and it becomes a deep, sinful desire. So one is comfort. So this in, in a relationship is, I want it and I must have it. And you better give it to me. And you better not get in my way of getting my comfort. And so deep inside, this person fears the hard work that relationships take. And they made comfort an idol, so to speak. But another one is pleasure. I must have it, I want it, and you better give it to me. So this is, for example, if you're married, you exist to give me pleasure. And so this is, this is your sole purpose, and, and, we, and this is more, well, this is both, but more common with men who make their wives an object more than a person to treasure. And this is it. You exist for my pleasure. Give it to me. And so deep inside, this is a fear of pain. Others' deep desire is recognition. And so what they want, like, I want it and I must have it. I deserve recognition. If I don't have it, I, I will be crushed. And a lot of times this is evidenced in how we treat one another and always trying to one-up each other and gain recognition and look better by pushing others down. And there's this fear of being overlooked, of not being noticed, not being valuable or important. Others, their desire is power. This is, I must have it, and I want it, and you do what I say, or you're going to experience my wrath if you don't do what I say. This is, this is a fear a, of being told what to do. This is wanting to be autonomous and in, in control of everything in your life. For people, it's a little bit more uh, nuanced, and so control is another one, similar to power, but this is, again, a wanting to control and to manipulate and saying, you don't disappoint me, so you exist to not disappoint me. And so we go into a marriage, for example, and we think that he or she is going to complete us. He won't. She won't complete you. I'm telling you right now. He or she can't. You were made for Jesus, not for him or for her in the ultimate sense. No way. And so deep inside, this desire to control, manipulate is insecurity. Others, it's acceptance or approval. Same kind of thought here. I want it. I must have it. And you are responsible to give it to me. And so deep inside, there's this fear of rejection. And any one of, of these, I'm sure you could probably identify with at least one. You could probably add to this list. Again, not exhaustive. But these, these are deep-rooted struggles that usually are able to be seen in relationships. And so how we treat one another, how we speak to one another, 
how we respect or lack of one another usually will show what's going on inside. So God is gracious to use our relationships to show us. If you're more concerned with your comfort than the other person's well-being, that's a sinful desire. Is your marriage vibrant? I mean that. Is your marriage vibrant? When was the last time that you had a conversation with your wife or husband that was more than just logistics about the children or who's going to the grocery store or who's going to take the car? When was the last time that you sat down, looked in each other's eyes, and shared your hopes and dreams and what God is speaking to you and had a meaningful conversation? Is your marriage vibrant? It ought to be. What about your other relationships with coworkers, neighbors, friends, church members? God uses relationships to change us, to expose these sinful desires that are evidenced by fighting and quarreling. So what is going on inside of you? If you don't know, I encourage you this week to go buy a journal, just just a little notebook, and start reading in the Word, and sit quietly, and just write down how you're feeling. Write down your fears. Write down your dreams. Write down your prayers, your questions. Pour your heart out to God. And I know some of the guys are like, dude, chicks do that. Yes, they do, and they're smart. Guys, let me tell you, do it. Your eyes will be opened. The Spirit will speak to you. Ask Him to reveal to you what's going on inside, and ask the Spirit to reveal to you what are your deep-rooted sinful desires because they can be so buried. They're the roots You can't see roots of the tree. It's underground, but the roots control everything. If the roots are bad, the tree will not bear good fruit. It's going to bear rotten fruit. And so what does the fruit of your relationships look like? Well, look to the root, the sinful desires that have to be rooted out and need to turn to Christ. We'll talk about that in a minute. So number one, through our relationships, God leads you to recognize your sinful desires. But number two, he leads us to recognize our sinful patterns. And so number two is through our relationships, God leads us to identify, so recognize sinful patterns. Verse four, we read it just a second ago. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So your deep sinful desires will lead you to then having sinful patterns of behavior. I don't mean the occasional foolish comment like, oh, I'm sorry what I was thinking. I'm talking about consistent patterns of behavior where maybe it wasn't just a one-time comment. Maybe that's actually a pattern and you don't actually even realize that it's a pattern. The Bible doesn't minimize sin. It doesn't try to sugarcoat sin. 
It calls it spiritual adultery. God says, you adulterous people. So when we sin with these patterns of behavior, it is, it is spiritual unfaithfulness to God. And when we live by the standards, the morals of this world, it says being a friend of the world, when we adopt that mentality, that lifestyle, it puts you at odds, actually being an enemy of God. He says it makes you an enemy. That's what the word says. This is serious. I didn't make this up. I'm just delivering what the Bible says. And so your relationships are going to reveal sinful patterns that put you in opposition to God. And so we have to recognize, we need to open our eyes and see our patterns. Patterns maybe of anger or of not listening or of having a mean spirit. These are evidence in relationships. Things like gossip. That's cancer to your soul and to our church. If you have a problem with someone, you go to that person. You don't go to anyone else. You don't talk about people unless they're in the room. This is, this is very basic. We learned when we were five years old, and we forget it when we're 35 or 45. But this is evidence in relationships, harsh words, impatience with each other, or shutting people out, ignoring them, you know, the cold shoulder. Why would we do that? Why would you shut people out? Well, I can think of two reasons, probably more, but two simple ones why we shut people out. One is because we want control. And by being quiet and shutting them out and ignoring them and not replying to them, we're, we're trying to get leverage over them, make them feel bad, and get control again so that we feel better about our own insecurities. Control. But it's evidence with this pattern of, of, of shutting people out. But another reason is I think it's because we're exposed and this, this person speaks truth and so we don't like that. So we ignore that person. We don't, we don't want to face the reality of who we are and so we conveniently ignore those people that make us feel uncomfortable about how we're living. But it's more than that. Our relationships also show sometimes we want to dominate conversations. Again, control. Or even if you're married, I would say this one, an emotional attachment. Now, I'm not talking about adultery. We all know that there's lines physically. We ought not cross. People still do it. But, of course, that is clearly wrong. But we can toe the line by having that person in the office that when we go hang around them, we, we get what I call the tingles. You know what I'm talking about? There's the opposite sex. You know, a coworker, you're around him or her, and you just really enjoy their company a little bit more than maybe you should. And you find yourself going to get water at that particular water cooler because it'll let you pass by her office, and you just want to say hi and see her smile. Or you like how she compliments you. These, these begin to be emotional attachments where you begin to message, and it's not evil, we're just chatting, but you ought not be chatting to that degree with the person of the opposite sex because you know that what's happening inside of you is you are emotionally connecting with that person and you're drifting away from the God you love and from your spouse. And so these are all examples. There could be many more, but these are all things that we can see that are evidence in our relationships that expose sinful desires, 
which are the root, and then the sinful patterns, which is the fruit. And so we need to beg God to open our eyes to what's going on in our lives and to have people that can speak truth. If you don't have the kinds of relationships in your life, people know you and will speak truth to you in love, then you will continue to be one of those adulterous people who is a friend of the world and is being opposed by God. And so we have, through our friendships, God exposes and reveals our sinful desires, our sinful patterns. Number three, through our relationships, God leads us to resolve to change. So yes, he, he reveals what's going on at the root, the fruit, but then he leads us to resolve to change, to decide to commit to change. Verse 5 says that due to the Holy Spirit who is inside dwelling in us says that god yearns jealously so he is jealous and then verse six says that god gives more grace and then he defines how by opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble you're thinking really pastor if he's good and holy then why is he jealous jealousy is a sin that's sometimes how we think but God can't sin, so this jealousy must be holy. You see, the word jealous here is best defined as being zealous. And so God is zealous for you. He is jealous for you. This is a holy longing for you, a holy desire for you, a holy jealousy and zealous, a zeal for you. God desires, he wants your heart. And this holy jealousy here is the fact that God will not stand for a rival. Husbands, if your wife had a guy co-worker who was trying to woo her and trying to win her heart, how would you feel about that if you, if you found out You'd be mad if you found some text messages from a coworker where your husband had a woman at work that was trying to win your husband's heart. Would you appreciate those messages? No. No. Because what you have is exclusive and should be intimate, including emotionally not just physically. And so God, in the ultimate spiritual sense, our marriages are simply a picture that points to the true relationship between Jesus and his people, the church. We are the bride, he is the groom. Our marriages are to mirror that. And so he will not stand for a rival. God wants your heart, and he wants it all. He doesn't want to share your heart with, with the other idols. He's not going to share your heart and you go on with other lovers. He doesn't roll like that. He doesn't. He's a holy God. And he wants your whole heart. He wants you. He is jealous for you. And so when we turn to idols, to other things, to fill us, to give us joy, that sinful it. It's God opposes it. God is warring against it. 
So he is actually in opposition to whatever it is that is competing for your affections. Sometimes the best thing for us, and maybe for you, the best thing for you is for God to allow you to be miserable. You hear me? I didn't misspeak. It's quite possible that the best thing for you right now is for God to allow you to be miserable with a broken relationship with your spouse or whomever so that you can resolve to change. Because God wants your heart. And your broken human relationships is simply a way for you to see that there is a deeper brokenness inside that is your relationship with God. Because it is not possible to have all kinds of broken relationships with, that, are, that are horizontal, so other humans, and to have a healthy vertical one. No way. They're, they're connected. And so if you show me a husband who is not loving his wife, I'll show you a husband who is not loving Jesus. It's connected. It's spiritual adultery. And so what God wants is to take your problems and disappointments in your relationships and use that to drive you to your knees because God wants to flood your soul with his presence with his spirit's healing, with mercy, with love, with grace. But he has also revealed how he does that. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When we humble ourselves before God, his grace floods in. And we sense his love again, and he begins to heal and to restore. You're thinking, Pastor, you don't know, I'm the victim. It's his fault or it's her fault. I have these problems in my relationship. Yes, they're painful, but you don't understand. I am the victim. And, and without trying to make that light, I may agree with you that you likely are the victim, that he or she has been the offender. But here's my question for you to ponder this week. Is it possible that how you have been responding to your abuser, responding to the one who's been hurting you. How have you been responding? Have you always responded in a godly way, or have you maybe developed sinful patterns, if nothing else, to cope? But have you nonetheless developed sinful patterns in that environment that you know needs to change? I would wager, because you're human, the answer is yes. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Will you humble yourself and allow God to change you? Will you humble yourself? Jesus did. The eternal Son of God, perfect, holy, loved everyone he came in contact with, even the ones that hated him and nailed to a cross. He prayed for them. He humbled himself. On the third glorious day, he was resurrected victoriously. The grave could not hold him, and his resurrection proves that he is who he said he is, which is eternal God himself. And if you here today 
are trusting in Jesus alone and his work on the cross, if you're trusting in Christ alone to save you, then your sins are forgiven and you are one with God. And so his spirit will empower you to walk in victory. He will. Now, you're not Jesus, so you won't walk in holy perfection, but he'll empower you to walk in a holy direction. God can change you. Hear me. I know a leopard can't change his spots, but we have a God in heaven who resurrects the dead, and he has the power to change you and your situation, to redeem it, to restore it, to display his glory through it. He can do it if we will humble ourselves before him. He will give us the grace that we need, the supernatural empowering to change. Will you resolve to change? How badly do you want it? I'll ask you this question. What do you really want? What is it that you really want? Before God, can you make a decision to want Jesus more and to move forward in faith, resolving to change? Last, number four, through our relationships, God leads us to change by repentance and trust in God. So he reveals our sin, our patterns. He leads us to resolve to want to change. And then lastly, he leads us to actually change by repentance and trust in him. So God demands that everyone alive, every human respond to him. He is real. He's your creator. He owns you. You have his image. He sent his son to die for you. And we are called to respond to him. And Jesus preached. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus is saying, the king is here I am the king. Now bow down and trust me. Love me. Worship me. And, and how do we enter into his kingdom? Repent and believe. With all your heart, you turn away. Repent means to turn away. Turn around. And we trust him. So in light of Jesus' coming, we're commanded to respond with faith and repentance. And this is how we enter the kingdom. This is how we come to faith in Jesus. You become a Christian, a disciple, by repenting and trusting in Jesus, giving your whole heart to him. That's how you enter into the kingdom. But then, then you grow. Then you grow in your faith and you, and you change. So you come to Christ, faith and repentance, and then you grow in Christ the same way, ongoing, daily, reaffirming that trust and repenting of ongoing sin. James 4, 7 through 10. We read it once, but let's read it again. Just the last few verses. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. One observation from verse 7 that's significant is he mentions the devil. He mentions Satan. So he mentions our simple desires, our simple patterns, our relational brokenness. Satan is involved. He's at work. 
dividing and tempting. And so understand that there is a real enemy. But we don't have to fear him because God is powerful, stronger than him, and he is in us. He says, submitting to God. We see that in verse 7. That is the essence of repentance, is again, turning away, submitting to him, agreeing with what God says is true about you. Saying, I agree with you, God. I am a sinner. I agree with you. Jesus died for me. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to turn around and get on a path that leads towards you in your presence and life. And then verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is just a beautiful verse. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You're wondering, well, how do I do that? How do I draw near to God? You draw near to God. You place your trust in him. We know God through, primarily, there's two realities here, how you can know God. One is through the word, and second, through the spirit. You need word and spirit to know God, to draw near to him. You cannot know God apart from his word. You cannot draw near to him apart from his word. This is how we do it. We, we know who God is through his word. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired revelation of God, his self-disclosure. He has revealed who he is in his word. And so it is the final authority for the life of every believer and for this church. And so we know who God is through his word, and we draw near by reading it. But that isn't enough. You need the Spirit, because apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible is going to just be an old book that's academic and maybe interesting and religious. That's all the Bible is going to be to you unless you have this Spirit who will then open your eyes and make those truths jump off the page and the word is alive and it will grip your soul and transform you. And so you need the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. You need word and spirit. And we receive the word when we repent and trust in Jesus. And then you have the spirit. And then we have the word. And so now we can draw near and enjoy him as we read and as we pray and experience his presence even together. Draw near to God. Verses 8 through 10 describes submitting to God, drawing near to him, and then it describes, we're about out of time, but it describes three realities that you will experience. It says you'll have purity. You draw near to God, he says you'll have clean hands and clean hearts. We'll have purity before God. Next, it says that we'll have sorrow over our sin. He says mourning. And feeling sorry for your sin. Not sorry you got caught. Not sorry for the undesired consequences. No. Sorrow over the sin. Over offending God and hurting another person. And so drawing near to God, your eyes are open. And so you have more purity. You have sorrow over your sin. And you have humility. Just humble yourself before God. And what is the result? The last phrase, and God will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will heal your soul. He'll restore your brokenness. He'll give you the strength that you need. He'll deliver you from the bondage to that sin. He'll make you more holy. He'll use you for eternal purposes. He's going to do all of this if we will humble ourselves before God and we get more of Jesus. That's the prize.
And it happens in community. It happens with your relationships. Let's focus our thoughts as we kind of come in for landing and wrap up here. God uses our relationships, both the sorrow and the pain, to point us to the ultimate joy that we can only experience and find in Jesus. So we're made for relationships. First and foremost, relationship with God, to know and enjoy him, but also with other people. Here's a fatal flaw of human thinking, human wisdom, is we believe that we can change our relationships without needing to change ourselves. And it's just not possible. The beauty of our God is that he will not fail you. He is, if you're a believer, he is at work in changing you. He will not give up on you. He loves you, and he wants to change you for his glory and for your good. And so when you experience joy in a relationship, it points to the ultimate joy you should find in Jesus. And when you experience sorrow in a relationship, it should point to the fact that you need Jesus more than you even realize you need him. So in joy and in sorrow in our relationships, it points us all straight back to Jesus. What about you? How are you? Do you have a relationship that needs restoring? Don't focus on him or on her. Focus on Jesus. Submit yourself to him and let him change you. And I can promise you this, it'll improve your relationship. I don't have a crystal ball, I'm not a prophet. I don't know what will happen, but you'll still have more of Christ. And God may just restore that relationship. Is there someone that you need to call this week? Maybe someone who is in this room that you have conflict with or uneasiness with and you know before God that you need to call them, arrange a coffee, and seek to reconcile. Is there someone? We can't ignore this because a healthy church is consisting of healthy relationships. What about you with God? How is that relationship? Do you know this one true God who loves you? If you don't, you can know him today. Come, speak to me. I'd be happy to introduce you to Jesus. You can know God and experience this peace and joy that only he can give us. Will you please pray with me? Our Holy Father, we are just filled with joy at knowing that we belong to you and you belong to us and that we have eternal joy awaiting us. And even on this side of the resurrection, we have your presence we have your people, we have your word, we have everything that we need to live a life for your glory. Pray that you would be with us, that would be a church that is marked with healthy relationships that reflect your beauty and your character. Make us a healthy church, Father, and we pray it for your glory in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.